1: And the Oscar goes to oh, thank you so much. This
0: might be the one time
3: I'm speeching. This is not a joke. Moonlight is one best picture. Could you double check the envelope?
1: And I can't deny the fact that you like me. Thank you, life. Uh-huh. Thank you, love. You guys are
2: just
4: standing up because you feel bad that I fell, and that's really embarrassing,
1: but thank you. This is nuts. It's a tie. I'm the king of the world! And the Oscar goes to and the Oscar goes. to... My yes,
4: to...
1: only object is. Here is to try and get a. What shall I go? What
5: shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Right me my dear, I don't give a. Could have been a contender.
1: That's
5: in your. I could have been somebody.
2: They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me, Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't.
3: census taker once tried to test me. Are you
1: not I ate his liver It's some strawberry preferment and a nice.
3: Kid. Don't laugh.
1: Can't stop what's coming.
3: This ain't reality TV. I'm all not falling.
1: Twitter. It's time,
3: it's fast. Welcome to the next best picture podcast.
4: And the Oscar goes to
1: everything everywhere.
3: Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 353 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. The time of recording is 1110 am on July 23rd, 2023. Happy Barbenheimer weekend, everyone! Here to join me today to talk about that and so much more, I have Lauren LaMagna. Hello. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Lauren Cohen.
5: Hey, everyone.
3: And Dan Bear. Hello. So for this week's episode, we're gonna be talking about the cultural phenomenon in our circles, and realistically, I think it is actually branching out beyond the film community and touching the general public in a way that has exceeded all of our expectations, and that is the theatrical release of both Barbie and Oppenheimer, commonly known as Barbenheimer. Uh, We got the box office numbers in just a few minutes ago, so we'll talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk a bit about some changes that happened this past week regarding the Fall Film Festivals and what it could mean for other theatrical releases moving forward throughout the rest of the year pertaining to the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strike. And we're also going to give our reactions to the trailer for The Holdovers, so much more it's a very exciting episode that we have for you all here we're going to answer your fan questions of course go over the polls but before we get to any of those things what did everyone see this week i imagine (laughs) you all saw barbie and oppenheimer but did you see anything else uh let's start off with lauren cohen lauren what did you see this past week
5: I, of course, saw Barbie and Oppenheimer, and I know we're going to get into a lot of that on this episode. Um, Obviously, I loved both movies. It's been an incredible weekend for movies and just an incredible weekend for the, like, communal movie-going experience and to seeing things on the big screen together. I Love the fact that I got to see everyone in pink and you knew exactly what they were seeing. I was walking down the street and a woman saw me in head to toe pink. I wasn't even next to the movie theater. She's like, oh, my God, are you going to see Barbie?
3: That's awesome.
5: (laughs) And that just like really warmed my heart. I was like, yes, ma'am. Yes, I am.
3: (laughs) I love that. That's great. Yeah,
5: it was lovely. Um, But uh, other than those two uh, fantastic movies, I finally got to see um, the documentary Everybody. Oh, yeah. Um, which I really, really liked, um, directed by um, the wonderful uh, Julie Cohen, who what uh, was one of the directors of um, RBG. Uh, I really loved it. I thought it's a really um, uh, interesting and important look at the lives of intersex people, which is something that, you know, so many of us know nothing about. Um, the three subjects were wonderful. It was a really fast, zippy documentary, which is like, you know, something that's kind of strange to say about something that deals with some, you know, very tough subject matters throughout, but it was very, um, holds your attention, very entertaining. And I just think, um, would be really great for a lot of people to see. So I hope people check that one out. And then I rewatched one of my favorite movies, um, Mistress America to prepare for my Greta Gerwig Barbie excitement. Um, Greta wrote the screenplay and stars in it. And it's directed by Noah Baumbach. If you haven't seen Mistress America, it has one of my Favorite screenplays of the decade. I really recommend people check that one out. It's so much fun.
3: All right. I love it. That's great. Let's hear next now from Josh Parham.
0: Yeah, well, I, like many other people, indulged in Barbenheimer this week. Uh, I'm, you know, I was on the Oppenheimer Review. You can hear my full thoughts there. Very good movie. Barbie, also a very good movie. I will admit that for me, I may not be quite as high on it as some other people. I think that film does try to tackle so many different things and I think at times it struggles a bit to kind of coalesce all of that story in a a cohesive whole that I found satisfying, but overall, I still really enjoyed it and it was very entertaining, highly highly recommended, and I want to see it again so even though I'm not quite on Masterpiece territory, it's still very fun and entertaining and I would definitely recommend people go and check it out Uh, and then the other movie that I actually saw, the that wasn't um a part of the big package that was happening this weekend is that I finally caught up with Theatre Camp. Oh yay. And this was also very light, charming, um a delightful time to to be watching a movie. I, I did think that it's a little slight at times. It's not like um a very heavy kind of a movie for for sure, but it was extremely entertaining. And the finale to this thing just completely charmed me. So I know it's getting lost in the shuffle of the weekend, but if you have an opportunity to see Theater Camp, I would still recommend you check it out, because it was just such a delightful, charming little movie.
3: Yeah, Theater Camp is still one of the best comedies I've seen this year. I laughed so, 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 so hard when I saw that back at Sundance, and I agreed. The musical number at the end of the movie, so good. Oh, it's So, so good. It's just, I,
0: I love that kind of presentation. Like, I'm not... Like a huge theater person, but I have such admiration and respect for it. And I just love those kinds of productions. And I think it's done so well in this film. Christopher Guest would be proud. That he would.
3: All right. Lauren LaMagna.
2: So, yeah, I did participate in this weekend's festivities. I saw them both yesterday on Saturday. I saw Oppenheimer first and then I saw Barbie. That was my order. And they're both really good movies. Um, It was a really fun day of movie watching and just experiencing that as a collective. Oppenheimer has my favorite score of the year. I'm officially declaring that. I don't need to see anything else. And Barbie has my favorite production design. I don't think I need to see anything else that'll top it for me. They're both great movies, and I'm really excited that they're here and that we got to celebrate it. Um, For other films, I also caught up on The Deepest Breath, which is a documentary that's on Netflix right now, I believe. Yeah. And it was a really good documentary about the sport of freediving, which is um literally, it's insane. But I think it's a really well-directed documentary that um educates its audience about the sport and the dangers of it and the rules of it. So you become really invested in the subjects b- towards the end. And I think it's a really good documentary. I hope the cast of Avatar never sees that. And I know that these people probably hate that cast. But um, if you guys are interested in this um. Tens um, really well-made documentary. Um, you guys should check it out.
3: I agree. I saw that back at Sundance. Um, not on a big screen though. So
2: mm.
3: I went to see it again recently at a screening in in person. And I I hear you, Lauren. There, there were people crying in my yeah. screening when it was over. And I I do wonder if it could do some damage in this year's Best Documentary Feature race because it definitely uh, is a film that introduces people, I think, for the first time to an extreme sport that they may have heard of, but don't really know that much about. Mm -hmm. I I don't know many people that are aware of free diving and what it entails necessarily. I know for me, it was all brand new. Uh, But beyond that, the story is also quite emotional and shot very well, too.
2: Yeah, it's really, again, a very well-directed piece. And Yeah, you learn so much about it. So by the time, you know, big events happen in the film, you understand the risks and the dangers of it, which, again, I just chalk that up to the directing of the film.
3: Let's see you do that now, Tom Cruise. Mission Impossible (laughs) Dead Reckoning Part Two. You're going to go down to that sub. Let's see what happens. I hope
2: he doesn't see this movie.
3: (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Dan Baer. How about you?
4: Yes, I did participate in the Barbenheimer festivities. Um, you can hear all about my detailed thoughts on both of those. I was going to
3: say podcast. you were the only one that was on both. I think. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> I, that was that was like strangely important to me to like be on both. We have the overlap, you know. I have always believed that this is not a pitting movies against each other type of situation, and it seems that that is really what has happened they have both lifted each other and turned this into an event of people seeing both not picking one and i think that's fantastic i love both movies in different ways they're both tremendous achievements and they're very different and i love that i love that we got to Big budget, very different, very successful at what they're doing movies on the same weekend. It's incredible. We never get that anymore outside of awards season, maybe. And then in addition to those, I finally caught up with Polite Society. Oh, yeah. Which is so much fun. I knew Um, you'd love that. (laughs) It's so much fun. It's so much fun. I absolutely love it. I love the energy of it. I love the cast. I think it's so funny. Uh, Priya Kansara is an absolute star as the lead young British girl who wants to become a a pro stunt woman. She's absolutely fantastic. So charismatic and so much fun to watch. I had a blast with the whole thing and it's available on uh, Peacock is how I watched it now. So I highly recommend everyone take some time to watch that
3: i thought that was a very charming movie it reminded me a lot of edgar wright a little bit just in terms, yes. terms of its energy yeah only criticism of that movie was i wish the fight choreography was just a little bit better but you you can't deny the passion that was poured into that movie by that cast uh the filmmakers and it, it wins you over i think
4: oh yeah yeah Totally. It's just because it's so, Nita Manzur, the director, it's so confident. It is such a clear voice, and it just is very much its own thing. And it feels like nothing else, even though it's an homage to lots of other things. I I absolutely loved it. So
3: we did something that I probably will never, ever do again. Uh, We recorded and I edited back to back. Two podcast reviews yesterday for Barbie and Oppenheimer, which were uh, the two major releases for this week. So if you want to hear all my thoughts on both of those movies, please, by all means, give those a listen. Uh, I worked really, really hard on those yesterday, so I would just appreciate it if people gave them a listen. I thought they were really good conversations, though, regardless. Uh, Beyond that, I also saw The Beanie Bubble, uh, which will be streaming on Apple TV in a couple of days. I believe right now it's playing a limited release. And in terms of yet another in a recent trend of examining the origins and undoing of a major corporation, I thought this one was just okay. Like, I didn't think it was terrible. And I also wasn't blown away by it the same way I was with, say, something like Tetris with its overall presentation or with BlackBerry with its writing and performances. This one just kind of sat somewhere in the middle. For me, I think the most amusing and intriguing element of it is Zach Galifianakis is playing such a sleazy character, and I think it might actually be his best performance to date that I've seen in a movie, uh, which was pretty exciting because I don't think that he you know is afforded the opportunities to play roles like this that often. Uh, but the women in this movie are the ones who really keep it all afloat, and they are the backbone of why this movie, if you think it works, they're the reason why. So Elizabeth Banks. Sarah Snook and Geraldine Viswanathan, uh, all of them, really good here. Uh, like I said, it's a little too conventional to maybe justify its existence, but I didn't mind it. It was it was fine. I also saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: Mutant Mayhem, which I am under a review embargo for at the moment. So I will just say this for the time being. I think like mitchell's versus the machines it has that sort of energy and style and tone that could win over enough people to be in this year's best animated feature race i could definitely see it happening it has such a youthful exuberance to it in its voice performances the hip-hop soundtrack the trent reznor and atticus ross score it adds so much to the identity of this movie that helps it to stand out from other Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films that came before it. So definitely worth a watch, even if you're not a TMNT fan. I, I can kind of understand that, but I, I think it's worth your time, especially to just even marvel at the animation that's on display. I love what's happening right now in the world of animation where we're getting this blend of 2D and 3D uh, coming together for a lot of these projects. I think it's reinvigorating the the, uh, the medium.
4: Eh, if they're not played by guys in giant rubber suits, what's the point?
3: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you 90s baby, you. As long
2: as they're running after pizza, it'll be fun.
3: Fair enough. Oh, and then last night, um, right before I went to bed, I, I watched They uh, Clone Tyrone, which is now streaming on Netflix. And I have to say, this took me by Complete surprise! I was not expecting this to be as funny as it was. The performances from John Boyega, uh, Tiona Paris, and Jamie Fox are excellent here. Jamie Fox, especially—I I, don't—I can't remember the last time I saw him be this hilarious in a movie. It, it, it feels like it's been a while. Uh, maybe "Horrible Bosses" was maybe the last time, but. John Boyega, too, yeah, I can't say enough good things about him. I, I genuinely feel that he is such an underappreciated actor who is constantly giving really, really, really great performances in movies that nobody seems to be watching, and it's kind of a shame, because between Breaking, Small Acts, and now this, th- this guy's the real deal. Somebody please give him a major platform again, and... Let him go on to win a bajillion Oscars because this this guy is, he's the real deal. Seriously. I mean, I think we've known that for a while, but he just
0: keeps proving it time and time and time again. Well, that's a good endorsement. I had heard about this movie, but hadn't really been all that interested in seeing it. But I've been seeing a lot of good notices for it so far. It has such a vision to it that helps it
3: to, I think, stand out in a way that is grounded, but opens it up to its sci-fi premise just enough with enough intrigue to make you want to see a potential sequel maybe i don't know we'll see i don't know what the plans are i don't know if they're actually going to do another movie with these characters but it does feel like the seeds are planted a bit here and i i tell you this if that is the case i would not be opposed to it
0: pretty nice
3: all right So that'll do it here for what we saw this past week. Now, let's head on over to a couple of different (laughs) talking points. Uh, First off, right off the bat here, I do want to remind everyone that the 2011 MVP Film Community Award nominations uh, ballots have been sent out. The deadline to submit those is July 28th. So make sure that you guys submit your nominations and we will read the nominations for those on next week's show on July 30th. And then voting for the winners will begin the next day on July 31st, and we will announce the winners sometime in August. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job, it's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, Join US Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at slash careers Okay. So, Josh, I got to ask you. You're going to Venice? Yes. How you feeling after this
0: past week? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, I realize that at this moment we're in a pretty unpredictable, very volatile time with the industry. And you do kind of have to accept these things. And obviously this is all about how, you know, Challengers has been pulled from the festival and it's not getting released until next year. And there certainly is a feeling in the air that with all of these festivals coming up, that there is just such uncertainty about what movies are going to be shown there. And my perspective is... If you are in support of the artists that are on strike, that means that you are in support of the behavior that is meant to be disruptive. And that just comes with the territory. So as much as I am disappointed that there are probably going to be some movies I'm looking forward to that won't be at these festivals, that that is the price for – getting these artists what they fairly deserve and it doesn't mean that there's not going to be anything worthy to see at these festivals i'm sure there'll be plenty of films that uh will be very interesting and should be sought out but yeah probably are gonna be some some consequences of not having the really big titles there and yeah that's a bummer but i just sort of feel like that's the way it is now and we just have sort of have to deal with it Two things I'm going to just
3: say it that really quick. Number one, if you do want to support the men and women that are currently fighting on the picket lines for fair pay, you can donate over to the Entertainment Community Fund, previously known as the Actors Fund. There is a link for that in the show notes and also a link for it on nextbestpicture.com. So if you want to find a way to help support... Please spread the word on social media or donate to the Entertainment Community Fund. The uh, SAG-AFTRA and WGA have not asked for a boycott of movies, clearly. That's been demonstrated by Barbenheimer this weekend. Uh, So I I think at this point, you know, like Josh said, we got to just roll with the punches and just see where the rest of the year takes us. Uh, Challengers, as he said, has been pulled from the Venice Film Festival after being announced as its opening night film and it's got a new release date of April 26, 2024. In place of that, we got an announcement that J.A. Bayona's uh, Society of the Snow, a Netflix film, which is about the uh, reconstruction of the 1972 plane crash in the Andes, uh, that forced survivors to basically resort to cannibalism to stay alive. That's going to be the closing night film for Venice. And with the announcement that Priscilla will have its North American premiere at NYFF as its centerpiece film. That pretty much means that Sofia Coppola's new film is also going to play in Venice. I highly doubt it would play at TIFF and skip Venice. So we know, Josh, that you'll at least be seeing Priscilla over in Venice for now until we get the full lineup announcement on Tuesday. But Dan, as someone who also uh, will be at TIFF, Lauren, I know you'll also be, Lauren, Lord Cohen, I have to distinguish between the two here. <laughs> I got to say, I'm kind of excited to partake in film festivals this year where a majority of the films, like TIFF announced 70% of their titles are going to be international. Some people might, you know, roll their eyes, cancel their uh, trips and say, oh, it's not worth it if I can't see X, Y, and Z. I'm like, you know what? Bring it on. It, to me, that just makes it even more exciting.
4: I think it opens up the avenue for the the festival to be even more exciting because you are seeing things that you we have less of an idea of what it is or what to expect necessarily because there aren't like, you know, (laughs) news about every casting decision, (laughs) etc. You know, it's good point. It's kind of exciting. And there's going to be I I think, depending on, you know, what ends up happening, but it looks like these festivals could have a real like thrill of discovery to them and that's pretty cool, even if it means fun. that we're gonna miss some of the bigger ones.
2: And that's what's fun about festival season. I love um just scrolling through Twitter and like talking to people who are on the ground and seeing what films are Captivating people and what aren't. And then you kind of get a gauge over, you know, what films to look out for. That's the point of festival season. That's why it's so fun and exciting. And I think this it's frustrating because these films getting pulled um don't need to be pulled. It's not like it was we're in the pandemic and they just can't do it. Um, this is completely preventable and doesn't have to happen. But the reasoning that we can now celebrate all these littler films and all these international films and just really encapsulate what festival season is all about is pretty exciting.
3: And a great example of that is uh, the replacement film for Challengers at Venice is Commandant, uh, which is starring uh, Pierre Francesco Favino, and that's going to now be the opening night film. Josh, there's even a chance – I'm not saying it's going to happen, but maybe The Boy and the Heron, Miyazaki's film, will go to Venice. Um, Maybe, Dan, it will go to TIFF. Mm -hmm. Who knows? I I think that it opens up a whole avenue of possibilities. Obviously, we're going to know more after Monday because Monday, tomorrow, uh, we will get a lot of TIFF announcements. Mm -hmm. And based on their world premiere status – if it is a North American or a Canadian premiere or whatever it is, that'll tell us what is going to Venice, and that will also tell us what is potentially going to Telluride. So I'm looking forward to the next two days just to see – how everything shapes up, especially considering the amount of uncertainty that's kind of been thrown into this. Uh there's been reports, not saying this is confirmed. I, I think there was a lot of confusion with this, but there were reports that Warner Brothers was considering moving Dune part two, the color purple. And I can't remember, did they mention Wonka as well? I think they also mentioned Wonka. Right? I didn't or was see
5: it, I didn't see Wonka. I saw Oh, yeah.
3: maybe it was Aquaman.
5: Aquaman. Yeah.
3: So those, they're thinking about moving to 2024, and if that were to happen, that opens up so much within the Oscar race at this point that it would be it would feel like the pandemic year all of a sudden where certain movies that maybe were saying, saying oh, all their fringe contenders or all oh, that'll stand a chance to get in the best picture all of a sudden now they're in.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's a very crazy time right now. A lot of things are just up in the air. But just to touch on what we were talking about with film festivals and the 70 percent international TIFF lineup. For me, I feel like the reason you go to film festivals is they're a place for discoveries, at least for me. Like as a programmer of a very international film festival and as someone who travels to film festivals, I think that the most fun part of going to TIFF is to be in line and hear someone talking about a movie you'd never heard of. And that ends up being the talk of the festival, kind of like the and granted, this is not an international title, but the buzz around how to blow up a pipeline that happened at TIFF last year where that was that wasn't the biggest movie of the festival. But I mean, that was maybe one of the most acclaimed movies of the festival. Yeah, I completely agree one of the first acquisition titles. And so I think that we have to get out of this box where if we're not seeing the whale to give a standing ovation to Brendan Fraser. Like that's not what film festivals only exist for. It's a wonderful part of them and it's fun and it's glitzy and it's great uh, launch pad for award season, but that's hardly their only purpose. So I think that to act like these festivals have lost their luster because they're maybe losing some of the glitzier, bigger um, titles that already don't need that promotion. (laughs) Really? I think um, is a little silly, but at the same token, I am obviously very disappointed as I'm a really big, uh, Luca Guadagnino fan, really big Zendaya fan, and I was so looking forward to Challengers and the fact that we're going to have to wait so long now when I thought I was going to be seeing it very soon is obviously a a huge disappointment.
3: Now, I imagine that this does not impact the streamers and their release plans. Like Netflix, I think, is going to move ahead with Maestro, The Killer. Same thing with Apple, with Napoleon and Killers of the Flower Moon.
5: I would think so. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. It's it's possible that if they had more of a the big thing is for their Oscar plans, you know, um, if they need a a theatrical a theatrical component and then think that not having talent would somehow be detrimental to that release. I mean, it's possible. I don't
3: think so. I think they're doing the theatrical out of respect to the filmmaker and not even for their bottom line as much. So, I don't. That that's why I think it doesn't affect them.
5: I don't think it'll affect them really. I mean, is it possible they move something? Sure, but I, I don't think so. I think it's really the the theatrical only releases that we have to be the most worried about. Although, like, you know, I had some people messaging me being like they're going to move Dune because the actors can't promote the movie, and kind of like in a in a tone that seemed like that's ridiculous. And I think people forget that like we work in the industry. Obviously, Dune two is on our radar aggressively, but like. These studios need the actors to be promoting the movies. That's how the average person gets that awareness. It's a huge deal to not have the actors there um, on every talk show and doing the red carpets and all that. So, I mean, I understand why they want to move them. But I think you're right, uh, Matt. When it comes to the streamers, I don't think this will affect Maestro and those types of films at all.
0: I mean, they still do need the actors for that marketing component, as you said, Lauren. And I I think that that is definitely something that will even affect streamers to a certain degree of those movies are uh, playing in theaters. Like I look at something like killers of the flower moon and yeah, it's an event for us, but that still is a movie that is going to need to be sold to audiences. And if you don't have, you know, Leo out there talking about the movie, I, I wonder if, if Apple would feel like that's worth them releasing the movie this year. I honestly do believe that is a concern.
5: Yeah. Like, will it get lost again? Like, you're, you're right. Like, we we are all counting down the seconds until the release of Killers of the Flower Moon. But the average person, even the average person who likes movies, if they're not a film Twitter person or not a total film obsessive, like, will they know about Killers of the Flower Moon or will they care from just a trailer alone if they don't have that Leo on, you know, everywhere promoting the movie? And I don't know the answer we haven't seen this but like you said like covid is our only point of reference for something like this and um movies weren't getting released really then so i don't i don't know what'll happen to movies like Killers of the Flower Moon i think that this is a big opportunity for that film a big opportunity for Oppenheimer i think they'll stay they're they're going to stay put because right now if everything else starts to shift it becomes it was already a front runner and it really solidifies it's standing as a front runner if they stay put
3: now laura without getting into specifics because i know you can't what has been the vibe that you've been getting as someone who's also trying to program your film festival and like are studios talking? Are they being cagey? Is it just wait and see? Like what what is the vibe?
5: There's a lot of wait and see right now. I think that, you know, a lot of programming, at least when it comes uh, to more regional film festivals, it's sort of a lot of that is dictated by TIFF. And, you know, so it's going to be like what goes to TIFF and then depending on what goes to TIFF, what its festival strategy is following that. And so I'm kind of just sort of waiting for that lineup to get released to see what decisions get made. And that's going to dictate a lot of a lot of everything else. So you are seeing, though, I'm definitely getting some of that sense of lack of certainty regarding things a lot more than, than usual where they kind of have their plans and especially when it comes to bringing talent to the film festival you know it's a very weird conversation to have right now um and i know it's not just happening with us everyone is obviously trying to get um stars to their to their festival but it's just a conversation that can't really be had right now with the strike so it's one of those things that you're kind of putting together your wish list and you're like well this wish list is assuming that the strike is over which again is just an assumption we're just you know best hopes that this is all resolved as quickly as possible, but who knows what's going to happen.
3: That's why it's like even hard for me to have a conversation with you all right now about what's going to happen with the Venice and TIFF lineups this week. I, I don't even know where to begin now.
5: Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's, it's a weird time and it's, it's weird because we're all celebrating like Barbenheimer and it's such a spectacular achievement and big thing for movie theaters. But at the same time, we all feel this like very like scary uncertainty because like, what else is coming out this year? Like, I feel like, I mean, I I feel like there are more movies that are going to shift beyond the ones we've talked. You know, we've obviously discussed the possibility of those Warner Brothers titles. This has already happened with Challengers. But are there other movies that we're worried about shifting beyond those ones that we've already discussed?
3: I mean, also, too, in terms of box office, are we going to see anything like this last weekend again throughout the rest of the year?
5: Is poor things going to shift?
3: I don't know.
0: Maybe. Maybe. I think it's possible. Ah! That is the one that would really crush me. <laughs>
3: yeah. I'm, I'm not kidding. The fact that Venice had already announced Challengers as the opening night film, I thought it was safe. Yeah. Now I'm thinking, yeah. well, next goal wins, which was already announced for TIFF. That could move. Mm-hmm. Literally anything could move.
5: Yeah, that that I thought Challengers was safe, too. And it was, like, actually traumatic. As a festival programmer, when I heard it was getting pulled, I was like... Oh, my God, I would actually kill me like that would actually I would be dead because, I mean, it was a big you know, they had this big trailer release. Everyone was excited opening night and then like, you know, props to the Venice team for for pivoting, you know, so quickly. And I'm sure their replacement is going to be a a wonderful replacement. But yeah, that's it's crazy. I thought I thought it was safe, too. I thought it would still premiere and then like kind of do its like festival run and then just have a later release date. But that's not how things went.
3: Now, because I'm a little sick and I can't rant as hard as I want to necessarily, Dan Bear, will you do me the favor of <laughs> telling the audience how this could all be resolved?
4: <laughs> how could this all be resolved? Well, gee, I wonder. Gee, I wonder the AMPTP could get their heads out of their asses and actually come to the negotiating table and in good faith. Talk with SAG-AFTRA and the WGA about paying them fairly for their work, maybe.
3: I did see a report that said that they came to an agreement regarding the consent for AI usage of their faces.
4: Which is, like, the most basic thing. Uh, Yeah, seriously. And if it took that long to get the AMPTP to break on that point like i don't know this the whole thing is just so strange and weird like the things that they're arguing about these are is at least with the ai it feels so common sense right like of course someone should have you know the informed consent about when they're image is being scanned when their likeness is going to be used for other things in the future
3: and if they pass away that decision passes down to their family
4: yeah yeah something like that i mean this is so like these are human beings that we're talking about here they have rights
3: (laughs) i was talking with my roommate and we were joking about that line in goodfellas where it's like but the movie industry is down. Fuck you. Pay me. Yeah. But I won't be able to have my second home or my yacht. Fuck you. Pay me. <laughs> like It's like every excuse I can think of that they are probably using to justify to not go forward with this. Yeah. There's got to be a solution. There there, there has to be.
4: They, they are cartoon villains at this point. And the really Literally. scary thing about that is that they don't care.
5: Yeah, and I think it's also important to know, and I feel like I've had uh, heard a lot of people kind of when they heard about the the SAG strike being like, oh, the actors are striking, they're not paid enough. And this is not about Leonardo DiCaprio and the actors that the average no. person has heard about. And that's what's really important to drive home to the average listener and the average person who maybe doesn't follow this stuff as closely as we do they're not striking for them. They're striking for the working actor who doesn't have health insurance because they didn't make enough that year. And for the people who are struggling every single day, this is not about the movie stars that you're seeing uh, this weekend during Barbenheimer.
3: It's also important to remind people as well that there used to be a time where you couldn't make good residual money on video rental DVD sales. Mm -hmm. Physical media has dropped so considerably and been replaced by streaming. And streaming does not have that same residual agreement in place. So they are getting literally pennies. You Mm -hmm. see
5: Mandy Moore for like This Is Us saying she got checks for pennies as one of the main stars of This Is Us, one of the most popular shows. I mean, again, it's not about Mandy Moore having bad, you know, her finances being in trouble. It's just about like the streamers change things and they're not getting paid for the massive success that these shows have brought in. Same thing with, um, I think we had, um, one of the actors from Gilmore Girls sit talking about, um, I think Sean Gunn saying about how popular, uh, you know, um, Gilmore Girls has been on Netflix and that like, they don't see the, they don't reap the benefits of that when it's one of the top stream titles for years. Yeah. And yes. this is and for
2: wants their members to make like $28,000 a year. Like it's very little, like that's not even livable. Like it's very little money and the studio's just say no to that. It's they're not asking for much. Well, hold on. What? what how many
3: people are in SAG AFTRA? Do like we know? Sixteen hundred? Sixteen hundred. No, it's got to be higher than that. Like hundred
0: and sixty thousand.
2: Yeah, maybe like I yeah, yeah. i missed just so
3: like zero. That. I'm sorry. So, all right, hundred and sixty thousand. Let's say times twenty-eight thousand, Lauren. Yeah, four point four. Yeah, like, I'm sorry, but when I see these high salaries, these high bonuses that these top executives are paying themselves. Year over year increases.
4: It is greed is good run amok. I will n- almost never forgive Oliver Stone for Wall Street, like <laughs> the damage that that has done. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's it's ridiculous. All right. I do want to move on with uh, some of our items here really quick. The Venice International Film Festival lineup will be announced on Tuesday, July 25th. Right? 25th, yeah. Mm. Yes, thank you. And the Toronto International Film Festival lineup, partial lineup, it's not going to be everything. They'll still do other clusters of announcements, but we're going to get a lot of gala presentations and things like that tomorrow. So looking forward to it to see what it all looks like. Should be interesting. And then, of course, you have the 50th anniversary of Telluride. They extended it an extra day this year. <laughs> I, like I don't know what to expect.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Good for them. Good for them.
3: <laughs> I, my guess. My guess is that Killers of the Flower Moon. Now that that's not looking like it's going to go to New York in one of the prime slots, maybe that goes to Telluride and they bring in Scorsese there. He's a frequent uh, visitor of the festival. I don't know. But what I do know is that another frequent director who has their films play at Telluride is Alexander Payne. And we got a trailer this week from Focus Features for The Holdovers, starring Paul Giamatti, Divine Joy Randolph, and introducing Dominic Sessa. This is going to be released in New York and L.A. on October 27th, then a limited release on November 3rd, and then a nationwide expansion into more theaters on November 10th. You can bet that this movie will either have its world premiere at either Venice or Telluride, and then probably also play, I imagine, at TIFF in New York. Let's take a look at the trailer for this one. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can.
2: Every year at Barton Academy, students, faculty, and staff depart the campus for a two-week winter break. But there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as the holdovers.
4: Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that?
2: You know, he
3: used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on (sighs) us. I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina. Stifle it, Tully. You just earned yourself a detention, sir. Being he here with you is already one big detention. Son of a bitch, that's another detention. Do you think I want to be babysitting you? No, I was praying your mother would pick up the phone or your father would arrive in a helicopter or a flying saucer. My father's to take you- dead. Okay. That completely took me by surprise. Did it? The presentation of the trailer.
5: What a throwback. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Okay. Yeah, the the throwback styling is a little yeah.
5: I don't but like I don't know.
4: Other than that, it just feels like another Alexander Payne movie.
3: No, it it's nothing. He he never ever ever like I I watch I've watched every Alexander Payne film yep. on a visual aesthetic level. The guy has never impressed me. I don't care if Nebraska got a cinematography nomination. We've we know my thoughts about that. Yeah. But In terms of creating a grounded character study that mixes comedy and drama with a central performance here from paul giamatti does it look like it's sideways no does it look like it could be better than the descendants probably and that's really all i care about
4: (laughs) yeah it does seem to have like a little more of the bite that election and sideways had that i've been kind of missing from his more recent movies not at the levels that he had in those previous movies but even a little bit of bite would be nice
3: i'm just glad that after the failure that was downsizing oh boy i'm just really glad that he's returning back to these kinds of stories and not trying to replicate that all over again because I did not feel the downsizing fit his strengths at all. Not at all.
5: But yeah, yeah. I mean, I love curmudgeon Paul Giamatti. <laughs> and uh, it, this looks just like a really good crowd pleaser. I don't know if it's going to be like the best movie ever, but it seems like the kind of movie that would fit very well into a best picture nomination that has that kind of tone that balances out the lineup with great performances, great screenplay, great direction, hopefully. Um, Yeah, it does. It does give me major crowd pleaser vibes. I don't know if it's going to be like one of the very best of the year, but I do think people will really embrace it if all goes well.
3: It looks like it has that same quality that something like Win Win had that Paul Giamatti also starred in.
0: I love Win Win. It's one of my favorites. And yeah, yeah, I was also sort of charmed by the execution of this trailer yeah it does have a very throwback kind of 70s vibe to it uh, of those old trailers and that that did intrigue me I do think this does have like a weird tonal shift within the trailer so I don't know if that's going to be also representative of the movie too but yeah a showcase role for Paul Giamatti I'm always going to be in support of Divine Joy Randolph also looks really good in this movie too and I'm excited to see more of her work so yeah I'm I do want to see this movie, and this trailer very much sold me on it. I do worry if this movie is going to come out this year. That is Alexander Payne going to be the only person able to promote it? Because that's going to be a whole can of worms right there. But
3: I was going to say because we haven't really talked about that on this show. But he's he's got some yeah sexual abuse uh, allegations thrown at him, and I don't think people are forgotten about that.
0: Well, yeah, or if they have, it will definitely get brought up when the movie comes out and especially if he's going to be the only one able to promote it. So that is another side of this movie that I'm interested to see how that will play out. But as far as the movie itself, I, I do want to see it. And I just, I love Paul Giamatti so much and I'm glad whenever he's got a chance to shine.
3: Yeah. Cause I feel like the last couple of years, he hasn't really had those opportunities. He's been a reliable, supporting character actor who, every time he pops up in a movie, even if it's in a bit part, he's usually elevating the scene or he's the best thing about it. So, to have him back in a leading role again with a character that I'm sure is going to be tailored to his strengths, um, I'm very much looking forward to seeing that. Also, too, I need to shout out, that freeze frame of his face. Hilarious. Incredible. At
4: the, at the end of the trailer? Yes, Yeah, great. Great.
3: Mm -hmm. That is definitely going to be our cover photo for this podcast.
0: (laughs) It's always the eyes. Paul Giamatti has great eyes. eyes.
3: Truly.
2: We love him. Everything that he does is just great. He'll sell everything for me. All right.
3: Let's head on over to the polls. Uh, Let's talk about Barbenheimer really quick here, uh, because last week's polls, we did two. Mm -hmm. We asked everyone, which is your favorite Christopher Nolan film? And we asked everyone, which is your favorite Margot Robbie performance? Now, I do want to ask regarding Barbenheimer, before we kind of dive into these two polls here, do we think that this is a one-off, you know, scenario that we're not going to see again for a very, very long time? Or do we think that studios are going to maybe communicate with each other to deliberately counter-program certain movies? Um, And when I say certain movies, I mean... Big movies. Because sometimes I feel like when it comes to counter programming, one film, uh, one studio knows that their film is definitely going to outgross the other. Like, and usually it's like an animated film or something like that. And the other is kind of like, I guess, probably happy to take second place. But I'm wondering if we could see scenarios where we do have two mammoth releases on the same weekend.
4: I think that they may try. I mean, counterprogramming has been a thing as long as box office has been a thing. As long as movie theaters have been a thing, really. But I don't think we've ever seen it with two movies that are this big and had such built-in audiences before. I mean, this is two major movies from major filmmakers opening on the same day at the same time, going after different audiences. It's very rare that that has happened. And given how major filmmakers tend to be about their projects, I don't know if they'll necessarily let that happen, even though like this has proven that it clearly works.
5: And I think it worked because it was organic, right? Like, I think it was more like I, I like, like Dan said, they can try, but I don't think it'll be successful. Barbenheimer worked because I think that and like, I'm trying to remember what when this all came out, that they were being released on the same day. But I remember being like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what a weekend. And it just built and built and built over the past couple months organically. And I, I don't really see that ever being replicated. Um yeah, I don't I don't think it'll work. I think this this happened because it was Barbie became such a phenomenon because of the incredible marketing. No one ever expected that movie to be have that level of excitement that it did. And then of course Christopher Nolan has a major fan base, but yeah, I don't I don't really see another Barbenheimer anytime soon. No.
2: Yeah, I I, agree. I think it was kind of cute you were saying like the studios like take such a big risk and co like share a weekend when they're just like when they have you know, their writers and actors on strike right now, there's no way that they would think that they would do that. This is such a risk for them to share a weekend with another huge movie. And I just think that this proves that you know, audiences love movies and they love going to see good films. And I think when you give us the opportunity, we're going to go to the movies. And I think, um, yeah, like what Lauren said, it's an organic process. And I think that's the key to it. But as far as the studios operating t- to do this, consciously and wanting to do this again on purpose i don't see them doing that at all
3: well let me ask you this question this is something i've been thinking a lot about since we heard the box office numbers which by the way barbie 155 million dollars which represents the highest domestic opening weekend for a female director ever and the highest domestic opening weekend of
1: 2023
3: oppenheimer opens up with $80.5 million, which is higher than Interstellar, Dunkirk, Inception, and Batman Begins, not adjusted for inflation, mind you. But a question that's been on my mind is if these two films were split and they weren't released on the same weekend, would they have made more? Or was the fact that they both were released together did they actually elevate each other to exceed expectations?
1: I, think, I
4: definitely don't think they would have made more.
5: No, Well, Barbie, no matter what, I think would be, like, has hit its, its max. But I think Oppenheimer was would have made less had it not been released against Barbie, because it forced, like, people usually, if I take, like, most people I know, they're not seeing two movies in a weekend. They're, like, picking, and then maybe next weekend they see something else. But the fact that it was Barbenheimer, it was like, you are spending the whole day at the theater And those pre-sales at AMC said over 20,000 people purchased double feature tickets. I think that Oppenheimer got a huge wave of ticket sales from it. I think Barbie would have been unaffected regardless.
3: So Christopher Nolan should be faking Warner Brothers. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) The irony. (laughs) Yeah. But I'll tell you this much. I think that because I saw some people saying, oh, wouldn't it have been cool if like, John Wick and Mission Impossible were released on the same weekend. No, oh, no, no, that that wouldn't work. No, no, Too those similar. are the
1: same Too audiences. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah, they would cannibalize each other. You got to think of it in terms of counterprogramming, uh, but you need to also think of like why did this specifically work? It, it's mostly because these are two artur filmmakers mm-hmm. who have established built-in audiences who love their work as filmmakers. That's the overlap.
4: And the properties themselves are opposite in just about every way you can possibly imagine <laughs> or create a binary. They're opposite, they're light and dark, comedy versus drama girly versus manly like there's all these different dichotomies that you can divide these movies between it that does not happen every day like did
5: you notice different audiences when when everyone barbenheimer this weekend did you notice the different audiences when you went from oppenheimer to barbie (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah right like you saw like my favorite was like i was went in line to go see um Oppenheimer and it was mostly men. I'll say it was a very packed like people were lining up like over an hour and a half in advance because it was like an IMAX 70 millimeter. Obviously, people want the best possible uh, seat to get that middle seat for IMAX. And I just saw this guy walk up to his group of of friends. He goes, hey, Oppen homies.
4: <laughs> God. Oh my God. And
5: I was like, man, I love this weekend so much. <laughs> and then you go to Barbie and it's just pink, pink, pink everywhere. And it's just like, you felt those different vibes so intensely. And it was just really funny to see, honestly.
3: Can anyone else think of another pairing of movies from this year that could potentially have worked on the same level as Barbenheimer to ele- like for both of them to elevate each other?
0: Well, I don't know about, like, stuff that has already come out, but I have actually just seen, which shows you that studios should never be in charge of this because that's the reason why (laughs) this worked, is that apparently... The next Saw film and the new Paw Patrol movie are coming out. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I literally Stop, just saw perfect. a tweet from Paramount that said, hashtag Saw Patrol. No. Like, oh, no. Oh, uh, my uh, no. no. like, The Paw Patrol audience can't even see Saw. No. <laughs> what are you doing? No. I wanted studios that. can't do
2: this. <laughs> I need a picture of the dad that's going to bring his poor five-year-old to get traumatized.
0: <laughs> oh, my God but yeah no this happened because it was totally organic as was said it was left up to the audience to make this of their their own and get excited and had this huge build up to it like that is the reason why this this worked i feel like it's a pretty unique situation not saying that it won't happen again but the right set of circumstances need to happen in order for it to kind of conjure up together like you you can't force this kind of a situation it needs to happen organically
4: no, and never uh, doubt that Hollywood will learn the wrong lessons yep. from nearly everything it does. So, well <laughs> I mean, said. Case in point Saw Patrols. Yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> With that said, I'm very, very, very happy to see so many people, different demographics, different age ranges, casuals, cinephiles, just going to the movies and having a great time this past weekend. It's been. A joy. Amen. Honestly. I, I I love seeing a moment where we're all unified like this. I, I, I kinda almost it, it, it reminded me a lot of like when Parasite won Best Picture where it was like, Okay, this was like the one time where everybody seemed to be happy <laughs> and I got that sense this past weekend as
0: well. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that though, because the thing about Parasite winning Best Picture is that that happened. We all were happy, and then the world ended. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> weeks
3: later. Josh,
4: and
0: it does I don't need
3: to be thinking about nuclear holocaust more than well, I am well, right now. Okay, that,
0: but it all it does sort of feel like a weird last hurrah for the industry though because it's it's weird timing to see this great box office numbers right as things are like imploding within the industry so we're
3: gonna get
2: get so many delays this next week (laughs) we all saw that tweet like comparing this to like the roaring 20s right before the stock market yeah and it really does feel like that Unfortunately,
3: I swear to God, if we come on the show next week and I find out that all these movies have been pushed to 2024, I'm blaming you, Josh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, it's just what it kind of feels like right now. It's like, really great. We're all very happy. And it's like right before just doomsday <laughs> right around the corner.
2: Still not on uh, with though, buddy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. Learn what you love and listen to the French history podcast today.
3: All right. Favorite Christopher Nolan film, Lauren Cohen. Tell us.
5: The Prestige.
3: Good choice.
5: Thank you. One of my all time favorite movies. I know it's not most people's favorite Christopher Nolan, but it's mine. Perfect movie. No notes.
3: I'm going to say Memento. Still number one. Oppenheimer came close, but a few flaws held it back for me. It's somewhere in the top three. It's either number two or number three for me. I don't know where exactly, but Memento is still undisputably number one. It's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. Great pick. Lauren LaMagna.
2: This is a tough one for me, but I think I'm going to have to go with Interstellar because at the end of the day, I am a sci-fi girl that was raised by a dad who also loves sci-fi. And I just think that's also one of the best scores of that decade so um interstellar josh look you have a friend
0: i know i'm not
2: alone your <laughs> <laughs> daughter love story come on like it's just yeah that's me at the end of the day Murph.
3: <laughs> all right josh
0: interstellar still yep it is still interstellar mm-hmm. i love that movie so much where's oppenheimer for you uh right now I think I have it in third place actually behind Dunkirk. So very very high up for me. Okay. Dan.
4: I also have a friend in Lauren Cohen because <gasps> my favorite is the prestige as I well. Never heard that ever. I love that. I, I know I'm so excited. So <laughs> Oppenheimer did come very, very close though are you watching closely?
5: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say what I just have to take this moment to say this about the prestige. I love movies with twists. It's like my Same. my thing. It is a perfect execution of a perfect yes. twist because a lot of movies cheat the audience where there are no clues. Like you watch the movie and like, they like, they want to say they got one up on you. Look, like, look, you didn't guess the twist, but there really aren't any like, tw- like clues throughout the movie. The prestige does it so many times where when I watch it with a person for the first time, I'm worried that it's so obvious because
1: yeah. as someone
5: who knows the twist, I'm like, oh my God, they're spelling it out for you. And no one ever catches the clues. Nope. And that's fucking brilliant screenwriting right there. Mm-hmm.
4: My favorite thing is if you read the um the novella that it's based on, it's a completely different twist.
5: Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I have to read it. That's funny. I think
3: it's also one of Hugh Jackman's most underrated performances as well. I think it's his best performance. Great performance.
4: Oh yeah, best performance, yeah.
3: And I also love that Nolan found a way to work the uh, three-act structure of a magician's act into (laughs) the three-act structure (sighs) of the screenplay.
1: Oh, incredible was, i
5: love this movie now i'm just like i'm like getting a lot uh, i think i, I might watch rewatch watch it again. this evening Me too, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <movie
1: night.
3: laughs> i've been on a nolan kick ever since watching oppenheimer i was i was getting ready to watch insomnia tonight now i might have to do a double feature yeah all right let's see what the MVP film community did here two films have been left off uh but the top 10 are number 10 the dark knight rises Should have been left off, but okay. (laughs) I I still maintain I think this is his weakest movie. I do too. And there are good things in it,
0: I will admit. But to me, this is the only movie from him that feels like he didn't really care.
3: I've come to admire so many aspects of it in the years Mm -hmm. since there's been a lot of stuff that it's like kind of revealed itself to me over time uh, thematically that I wasn't quite consciously aware of when I saw it back when it first released. And I also admire the scale of it all. I mean, I think at the time, I think it was like the highest budgeted film ever. I think it was like $300 million budget or something like that. Because when you take into account, like they they built that entire prison. They had all those extras. They shut down those city streets to film the, the fights and the car chases. I mean, like the scale of that movie is huge. But, oh, yeah, there's one too many. One too many stumbles in there. Very Uncomfiliard. Um. Number nine. I'm, I'm making the gesture with my
0: hands right now. Tenant. <laughs> Which I also rewatched again recently. And you know, that movie still has so many problems, but I have to admit, it does kind of get better on rewatches. I agree with that too, because the first time I
3: saw it, I I remember reviewing that on the pod. I remember thinking this is like. The worst case scenario, because I wanted to watch it again, but couldn't due to the pandemic. That was a movie I felt like I needed to watch at least two or three times before we sat down to review it. I did not understand. I still don't really understand are elements of that Mm -hmm. movie that I still don't get.
2: It looks cool. I could give it that. It does (laughs) look
3: very cool. I just don't think, unlike Interstellar, where I thought he did a really good job of explaining that movie's uh, science... The way that he explains the concepts of uh, of Tenet, and even uh, Inception too, which you know, the stuff in Inception is not real, but he explains it in a way that makes sense and the audience understands it.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: There, there are times where they're
0: doing exposition in Tenet, and I'm like, wait a minute, what? You lost me. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw it that because of the sound issues, there were large chunks where I just had to, I, I just gave up. Yeah. It, was, it was more frustrating trying to figure out what they were saying and what was happening in the movie than just saying, okay, I'm just going to accept that. I don't know what is happening and just try to go with it, which is sort of fun, but is also very frustrating at the same time. But I do think that movie benefits from multiple viewings. And I have, warmed up to it a lot more now. I still wouldn't rank it high in his filmography, but there are some very good things in that movie that I recognize. Yeah. Number eight, Batman Begins.
3: Still a very solid Solid movie. movie. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's fun. It's really good. Number seven, Oppenheimer. Mm. I mean, I'm just happy it placed in the top 10. I didn't know if enough people were going to vote for it in time. But... Well, it's it's judging by fair, the box office, like,
1: clearly every, they did.
5: <laughs> it has the least viewers out of most of his movies. So I feel like yeah. maybe that would change in like a few months or weeks or whatever.
3: Yeah, I could see that. But then again, I mean, from here up, it's like we could have any order and it would make sense. So let's see. Number six dunkirk oh actually a little bit lower than i thought it would be yes yeah i'm a little surprised too but then again i like dunkirk i like dunkirk a lot i think it's really really well done and i still like in a francis ford coppola shooting apocalypse now sort of style i'm like i don't know how the hell he shot on water and got all this in camera like it boggles my mind
0: (laughs) His best directed movie, in my opinion.
3: But mm. there's no way that there were 400,000 men on that beach in that movie. <laughs> and <laughs> on top of that, I, I do wish the character work was a little bit stronger. That That's that's always been my two complaints about
2: that's, Dunkirk. Yeah.
3: Number five. <sighs> Man, I wish this was higher, too. The Prestige.
4: We ride I mean, the tonight. Yeah, <laughs> it's up
5: there.
4: I'm honestly glad I made the top five. Yeah, it's up
5: there. <laughs> It's not high enough, but top five.
4: Yeah. <laughs> you want to be
3: fooled. <laughs> Number four, Memento.
2: I just want to say too Natalie. Low. Natalie, what a beautiful psycho. I love you. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I love you. I know we all love Carrie Moss's Trinity in the Matrix saga, but God, is she phenomenal here.
3: And also, too, Lauren, I know you agree with me on this, his best written female character
2: to date. Like, she's... Not, I mean, I don't even chalk her up to him anymore. Like, that's the thing. (laughs) She is so out of the ballpark with every other character he has written for women or directed women that it's not even a competition. So that's kind of why I get frustrated with the women in Nolan films because Natalie in Memento is so amazing. She's such a good character and with a great actor that played her and the fact that, you know, we started so high and have just plummeted. That's the sad part for me.
3: He came so close with Kat for me and Tenet. Like, so, so close. But I will never, ever, ever forgive the line reading, including my son. Yep. I will Mm -hmm. never forgive that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's what's like, again, that's what's frustrating for me is just the plummet. Because I know he can do it. He did it with Natalie. You know, it's there. He can do it. He's just not. That's frustrating.
3: Number three, Interstellar.
2: I love it.
0: Top three, I will take it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I was going to say, like, did Josh vote multiple times?
2: <laughs> it's a good movie. <laughs>
3: Have you guys seen the Letterboxd score for Interstellar? Like, this movie clearly is one of
2: his most
4: beloved. Which is so, like, it good for that movie because it was not at the time.
2: It really has grown over the last years, I will say.
3: Yeah, I, I think so. I think if that movie were re-released in IMAX, like, people would show up. To go see it again, for sure.
4: I probably would, and it's not even my favorite Nolan movie.
3: Number two, Inception, which means number one is The Dark Knight.
4: I mean, we were expecting it, right? Yeah, not shocking right. at all, but not great shy. movie. I it's a good one.
3: It. Yeah. By a difference of 90 votes, too. Damn. Wasn't close. So those are the top 10 Christopher Nolan films as voted by the MVP film community. But now we have this other lovely poll over here for Barbie. (laughs) Margot Robbie's best performance, or rather, let me rephrase that, favorite performance from Margot Robbie. Lauren Cohen, what is it for you?
5: I'm going to be basic. Wolf of Wall Street.
3: Okay. That was for many of us our first time seeing her on screen, and she made quite an impression. Yeah. Lauren LaMagna, what about you?
2: I don't know. I recently watched Babylon for the first time. I finally did it. How,
3: how was that for you, by the way?
2: It was good, but it was long as hell. Like that's the, that always
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's what always like made me like stay away from it for so long. I had to like work up the strength to sit for that long, but I really did like it. And I think Margot Robbie is really good playing East Coasters for some reason. Like she really got that um I liked the dialect that she had. But I think I'm going to be basic and do itania because that was just such a great performance. And I love um just the arc that she went on and what she was able to convey during that runtime. It was a really good um, showcase of what she can do. And I just loved itania
3: I didn't get a chance to interview Margot Robbie for Barbie. But if I had, before the interview started, I would have made a point to tell her, you are great in Babylon. Babylon is a great movie. History will be kind to it. Babylon's a great movie. Because I, I just want everyone that worked on that movie to know that history will be kind to it in the long run. <laughs> like, don't let it get you down. <laughs> uh, but Babylon is not my choice. It's close. Super close. But my choice is also I, Tanya. I think she is flat out remarkable in that movie. I probably would have voted for her in 2017 to win the Oscar for that performance. Yeah. Not kidding, Dan. Huh. Well, what's yours?
4: <laughs> I am... Uh, stuck between two at the moment. I think she is absolutely fantastic in Barbie, and I think the movie doesn't work without her in the lead role. But I, I'm always like wary of saying saying the newest thing is favorite or best because it's just you know the thrill of the new can be a little too intoxicating. And my other that I really love from her is actually Mary Queen of Scots. Oh, yeah! I think she's tremendous in that. I think she really both her and Saoirse Ronan are tremendous, and I think that the chemistry between them is actually something that make that raises that above her other ones for me. I think often she is working with co-stars who are not at her level or are giving something less than what she is, and I think in Mary Queen of Scots, she has a whole cast that is really supporting her greatness, and that's one of the things that makes it stand out to me.
3: I will never forget how much my spine tingled when she delivered a line reading, You're inferior! It's like, oh my god! She's so good!
0: (laughs) She's great. Okay, Josh Parham. I think I'm actually going to say Babylon. I think that she is just a force of nature in that movie, and I am just so captivated by pretty much everything she does in that film. And I think that's my pick for my favorite. All right, let's see what the MVP film
3: community did here. Top 10 coming in at number 10. No, that can't be right. What? Oh my God. Okay. Number 10 is Asteroid City.
4: Okay.
3: All right. Interesting. I guess that scene, that one scene, made an impression on people.
4: <laughs> I mean, it's because she has the Mary Queen of Scots hair again. I, I don't know what to tell
3: you. <laughs> well, Dan, that makes perfect sense because number nine is Mary Queen of Scots. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> perfect companion film. <laughs> number eight. Oh, neither one of us brought this up before. Her other Oscar nominated performance, Bombshell. Well, I There's a reason but, why we didn't bring it up.
2: <laughs> a, I she do has think her think moments.
4: She is great in bombshell. Yeah. She really is.
3: I remember there was that scene where she's on the phone. I think she was in a telephone booth. Yeah, If yes. I remember correctly, it was yeah. raining outside. Good. And I remember her performance moved me in that moment. So much brought me to tears.
4: Yeah. Oh, she's great.
2: I think Kate McKinnon calls her anchor Barbie in that movie.
3: <laughs> yes. Number seven. <laughs> I want to make sure I'm saying this right here. The Suicide Squad.
4: Okay. Yeah. I can I can see that. She's a lot of fun in that one.
3: Number 6. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
2: Yay! Okay. No comment.
3: <laughs> I I still am indifferent to this a little bit still to this day. I went in maybe with too high of an expectation, I remember, and then came out <laughs> feeling similar to how we felt when we talked about Emily Blunt the other day, Dan, on the Oppenheimer podcast, where oh, I'm like,
4: yeah. she didn't have enough. She's good, yeah. Yeah,
3: but she's good, and yeah. she's elevating, I think, what she's being given, but I just wish the movie gave her more to do.
4: Yeah, I think like she's very good in it, I think. Calling it one of her best performances is a bit much. <laughs> well, the
3: the poll is for a favorite Margot Robbie performance. So yeah, it's fair. Number five, Barbie. There we go. I actually think that this is going to become a career defining role for her in years to come. I think that the same way. I think this was said on the podcast yesterday. The same way that you know we refer to certain actors as oh, they were James Bond or they were Batman. We're, we're going to say Margot Robbie was Barbie.
4: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It is an iconic performance, literally.
3: Number four. Her other performance as Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why well, they got some love. Yeah. I think that's my favorite time that. that she played that character for oh, sure. Yeah.
2: You yeah. really did, like, redefine mm-hmm. that character, and that's pretty awesome to see. Yeah. All
3: right. Number three is The Wolf of Wall Street.
5: Yes you know she does such a good job and that like she got so famous after that movie which is you know in part because she's just the most beautiful human in the world obviously and fit that role so well but she also like she holds her own next to DiCaprio and like you know that's not hard to do when you're that much of a newcomer I think she really holds her own and she made such an impression I just love her in that movie
3: and she was how old too? Twenty three, twenty
5: two. Twenty two, I thought, something like that. Wow. Yeah, she was young.
4: really young. I don't think I've ever seen someone like burn up the screen in their debut quite like she does in that movie. Yeah. Like she is just I, a fireball of charisma.
3: I, I gotta give credit to the master Scorsese for casting her, mm-hmm. honestly.
5: Yeah, that was a true like find and just like such a great like on screen performance from such a newcomer. I don't I don't remember what she did before that. That's what I'm struggling with. Um Pan Am. Pan Am <laughs> Did she have any movie credits before that?
4: I maybe in like, Australia in she Australia. did a lot of work. Like
2: Yeah, but, but not not in the US.
5: Yeah. Um yeah I actually thought it was gonna be like one or two possibly so that's I'm actually surprised it's at number three, but continue.
3: Well by a difference of thirty three votes. Number two is Babylon. Ooh. And number one is I, Tanya.
5: I mean,
2: she kills in both of them. Oh, yeah. Definitely my top two for her.
3: Same. <laughs> she definitely cracks some knees in, uh, in one of them. God. <laughs>
5: <Whoa>. <laughs> Too soon.
3: All right. Well, thank you to the MVP film community for voting on both of those polls for Barbenheimer Week. We really, really appreciate the turnout. We had so many votes uh, for both polls. Really can't thank you enough. And now for this week's poll. First time we're asking this question for this year's award season. I figure now is the time, given that we're about to get all these fall film festival announcements. Plus, Next Best Picture released their Oscar predictions for the first time for this new season. So that is currently live up on the website for you to view at the moment. Which film do you think will be the Next Best Picture Oscar winner? It is a dreaded question this early to ask. (laughs) But, Josh Parr, what, in your opinion, is the frontrunner right now? For
0: me, at, at this point in the year, it, it's always the same that it is a movie that I'm just sort of having as a placeholder because almost without fail, whatever you say is going to win Best Picture at this point will not win Best Picture. So uh, it's not a huge vote of confidence. But for right now, I'm just going to say Killers of the Flower Moon just based on the prestige and talent attached to it i feel like that isn't going to happen ultimately but for now that's what i'm going with
3: i having seen killers it's tough because i truly do believe it can win but i agree josh that saying something can win this early typically tends to doom it because nobody likes seeing a film that uh is number one out in front this early, remain out in front throughout the whole season. People like to see a race. People like to see contenders fall down, rise up. And so I'm torn, but it makes the most sense to me. I will say, though, I talked about this on our our podcast review. I, I think there is a world where Oppenheimer could potentially rise to that number one spot. But for now, I'm sticking with Killers of the Flower Moon. Lauren Cohen?
5: Yeah, I, I still have Killers of the Flower Moon. I haven't seen it yet. And it's what I, I agree with everything you guys said. Um, it's just it's a it's a weird thing to predict when you haven't seen the movie. And obviously so much of this, it's so early. Um, a movie that I want to say I do think I can see like clawing its way to the top potentially is Saltburn. So I'll say that as my second choice. So I'm not as basic.
3: It would be really, really cool to see Emerald Fennell back mm-hmm. up on that stage. Two films in a row.
5: I could see
3: it. Okay, dead bear?
4: Look, obviously the best picture frontrunner is the cinematic masterpiece of the year, Plane, starring Gerard Butler and Mike Coulter. And the fact <laughs> that you're all sleeping on it is just shows how out of touch you are. That's um, true. <laughs> completely kidding. I I'm kind of like in the same line of thinking as josh that like just right now based on everything that we know and not having seen any of the late year movies probably killers of the flower and moon but um i want to send wb a message so i'm gonna say i think the first picture front runner right now is dune part two if it gets released
3: that's gonna be very interesting to see if that does pan out because i i do i do wonder how they're going to End it like, are they going to end it as a definitive ending without a lead in into Messiah, or are they going to keep it open? Because how it's perceived as an ending, yeah, I think will determine its fate within the best picture race. Because if they know that there's more to come still, then they might just opt to wait,
4: yeah. And I, which is why kind of why, like, I hope they don't make a third one. <laughs> Even though, like, make as many movies of Dune as you want with this creative team because Jesus Christ, it's the most stunning thing. But look, if they manage, if they keep up the same level of quality from the first, and there's no reason to believe they won't, and if they do better box office when the first, which if they don't release it on streaming, they also very well could, (laughs) Sky could be the limit, you know? yeah getting high on that spice get high on it baby come on warner brothers just release it this year that's all we need
3: (laughs) (laughs) seriously what about you lord
2: this question makes me stressed because every fall movie has an asterisk question mark to it so that just makes me nervous um but yeah i do think it's between killers if it gets released or oppenheimer so right now I'm gonna say Oppenheimer, because again, killers, I just I don't know if it's happening. I'll
3: tell you this much about Oppenheimer. The thing that works in that movie's favor, there's two things. One, it will most likely have the backing of the actors branch because of how expansive the cast is. Mm-hmm. And two, that ending lingers and in a way that is relevant to the world that we live in today. And that could substantially, I think, help it uh, when voters are trying to, you know, just encapsulate, OK, what was the best picture of this year? It's the film that talks about a defining moment in human history that could determine the outcome for the end of the world. <laughs> like, you don't get more relevant or epic than that. <laughs> so. All right. Head on over to the polls page dot nextbestpicture.com. Cast a vote. Tell us which film you think will be the next Best Picture Oscar winner. And definitely be sure to check out our latest Oscar predictions, which we are always constantly updating live in real time. And now for questions from the fans. Let's see what the MVP film community had to ask us this week.
1: Hi, I'm Christina Yerling-Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential.
3: Tyler Strandberg, which song from Barbie do you think Warner Brothers will campaign for best original song? Dance the Night Away, What Was I Made For, or I'm Just Ken?
4: What Was I Made For? Yeah, I would assume that one.
3: Former Oscar winner Billie Eilish? Yeah, I think that that's the choice to go with for now. But that's not to say that they can't get two in there.
5: I think I'm Just Ken could also squeeze in, honestly. I love that one.
0: I would love it, too. It's my favorite in the movie.
3: We're all in agreement that if that got nominated, there's no way in hell Gosling performs it, right?
5: I... In a just world, there is.
4: <laughs> <laughs> like, I could see it happening, honestly.
5: He's got a good sense of humor opening, like yeah, one of the opening uh, numbers or something? I don't know.
4: Maybe.
3: Jeffrey Care. if Dune Part 2 and The Color Purple don't get delayed, do you think Warner Brothers will prioritize both movies for this upcoming awards season more than Barbie?
4: I mean... They kind of already are by giving them a release date in awards season. So that kind of tells us where their priorities lie. But I would say that if any of them disappoint with reviews or box office, Barbie is ready and waiting to become a yep, priority. Yeah, it's got the
3: reviews. It's got the box office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And if both move, then Barbie's in. hmm Uh, Peter Rabbit's Defender, with Oppenheimer doing gangbuster business right now with critics and also with audiences, do you guys think that Christopher Nolan has now become the newest weapon for Universal Pictures? What a way to phrase that, (laughs) especially in the time that the Fast franchise is about to be over soon. Okay, I see what they're saying. So he's basically their new
0: box office guarantee, essentially. Well, do we know if he has an extended contract with Universal or was it just for this one movie at this time? I mean, when you think about it from the perspective that they pretty much gave him anything that he
3: wanted and they also work with Jordan Peele. They work with Quentin Tarantino. Like they've come forward and said that they are a filmmaker-driven studio or a filmmaker-friendly studio. I would think that he would want to continue making movies with them, whether there was a contract or not.
0: I mean, I'm just saying just for right now, we don't know for sure that it's going to be a continual thing, but it would be an, a, a safe assumption. Yeah, right. Yeah, because they gave him so much control over this movie. I mean, which is kind of paying off, but it, it was sort of unprecedented, the deal that he got. So I would assume that since it's looking like this movie is going to be very successful, that they would want to continue that.
3: Yeah. And also consider too with uh, Paramount working with Apple for Killers of the Flower Moon and Sony working with Apple for Napoleon. Those are two studios right there that Nolan's not going to risk going to out of probably fear that they'll strike a deal with one of the streamers and he won't get his theatrical rollouts in 70mm for his movie, you know? Very true. I I just can't see Nolan, like, compromising and agreeing to putting his film on streaming while it's in theaters. I just can't. I cannot imagine him doing that. Absolutely not (laughs) from him. Oscar is um well okay, this this question's really only for me, I guess, but Oscar Odyssey. For those who have seen both, is the cinematography race likely going to come down to Rodrigo Prieto for *Killers of the Flower Moon and Hoy Van Hoytema for Oppenheimer? If so, who's your current winner between these two long overdue craftsmen? I would also throw Greg Frazier in there based on that Dune trailer, because it looks exactly the same as the first film, which won the Oscar for cinematography, but that also gives me pause because I I don't think that they would want to just reward the same thing over again. You look at Lord of the Rings, half the same thing happened there, where the first movie won cinematography and then the other two weren't even nominated. Exactly. So I will say between Oppenheimer and Killers, having seen both, I think Oppenheimer is winning the Oscar.
0: Oh, man, this is a real Sophie's Choice for me because
3: <laughs> I want to see them both win. They invented black and white IMAX film stock. Like, that is... Th- that's all they have to say, and the ASC is going to give it to him as a result, you know? And then right from there, BAFTA will probably give it to him.
0: I, I think he- I think he's going to go all the way. It definitely feels like it from right now that that's where the race is between. And as I said, I love both of those cinematographers. I've been wanting both to win for a while, so this is so difficult <laughs> for me to watch this race, but we'll, we'll see. I- the other thing I do wonder about is... Because recently I have noticed that the cinematography winner has often paired with the production design winner. So that's also something else to kind of keep in mind, too, to see if that parallel will continue this year.
3: Well, I know a lot of you guys have Barbie in for production design. I personally think Killers uh, will contend for for production design. So maybe it is Killers for both. Yeah. Maybe. Don't say it's Barbie for both. I don't believe you. (laughs) Ben Sears, is Barbie the frontrunner for one of the comedy musical categories at the Golden Globes? No. Marco is in a good spot.
4: Yes. Ryan is even in a good spot right now. But the movie at the Globes? Uh, for one thing, Barbie is a super American product, and they are the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. For another, you still have a couple major musicals coming out and – Usually, if you have a pure comedy versus a dramatic musical, which The Color Purple is, give the edge to the dramatic musical. But if The Color Purple moves? Potentially, but then we also have something like The Holdovers, potentially, mm-hmm. in that category. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Like other late-year movies with you know, awards in their sites that are nominally comedies that get placed there.
3: This is kind of going off of the uh, previous question from before. Edwin Aras. Now that Oppenheimer will probably receive over ten Oscar nominations, which ones do you think it will actually win? I feel pretty good today about score. score. Yeah. Score
5: and cinematography.
3: Cinematography. Yep. Um, I actually. And what about
5: Robert Downey Jr.?
3: I actually did move Downey to number one. Yeah. Mostly because I could I could see him getting the career mm-hmm. narrative push.
5: And he has that just like electrifying, like last hour.
3: You know, he's going to kill his speeches, too. Yeah, yeah, I can
5: really see it. I mean, it's it's early, obviously, because we haven't seen most performances that could potentially be in that category. But I, I, I would say score cinematography and Downey for for me right now.
4: I think it's also, if not at number one, very much in contention for visual effects.
3: Oh, no. I think Dune is winning visual effects no matter what. (laughs) But in another very close race where I could see Oppenheimer defeating Dune, I also
0: have it winning sound. Yep. And I know the stat did just fall, but there's still a very strong correlation between sound and editing. So at, at that point, put Oppenheimer in the win best picture. I say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Once you start tallying it up of what it could win. It does start to make sense.
2: I did say it on record today,
3: but I'm starting to think that this is maybe gravity in some way where it's director tax, but it doesn't win uh screenplay and picture. But if one of the actors like Killian or Downey, come along with it that has all the recipe then the win best picture at that point
0: right and i think also unlike those other examples like yeah the it gets looked at as more as a tech piece but i also think that the writing and performances are being singled out as greater achievements than we normally see in these types of projects
3: yes okay grace kogan rank greta gerwig's Solo directorial films.
4: Oh no. 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 no I possible. really don't I, I was nope. I've been like writing
5: this part of the podcast literally for the past couple hours. No, I,
3: I can do this. I'm I'm okay. You can do I, it. I know it.
5: Okay, fine. Yeah. You go first, please.
3: Sure. Number one is Lady Bird. Number two is Little Women. Number three is Barbie. And they're all great. Yeah, cosine.
5: Mm-hmm. No, no cosine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: I love that you're like, no, <laughs> no,
5: like... I, I think it's the reason I, the, I think this is particularly hard because obviously she doesn't have that many films in her filmography. So it makes whatever, whatever ranking it makes it seem like you hate whatever comes in third. No, that's the problem. Just
3: make a point to say that you don't hate it.
5: <laughs> I know, but it just it will it will never really fully get the message across. Um. Um, it's literally gonna, the
4: difference between like an A plus and an A and an A minus. Like that's know, what we're talking just, about. Like, it they're it all on me. the Dean's list. <laughs> <I know>. Yeah. <laughs>
5: I'm going to say Lady Bird, Barbie, Little Women. Okay. But I love Little Women. So it's, it's just very hard. Um, and also, I mean, I lo- I know this is not part of it, but I just love Mistress America so much that I need to say it again. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to go with the order of Lady Bird, Little Women, and Barbie. Although, Lady Bird and Little Women, it's very, very close.
2: Love all your answers, guys. This is great.
3: (laughs) (laughs) All Hail King Shark, post-Barbenheimer, and pending delays. What supporting performances are you most looking forward to seeing from the rest of the year? Uh... Well, if the piano lesson ends up coming out, I would love to see what Samuel L. Jackson is cooking in that because if we can get a narrative for him to win an Oscar this year, considering how vocal he's been that he's you know been disappointed that he didn't win for Pulp Fiction and I know he just got an honorary award, that is still something I would very much like to see.
4: The performance I'm most looking forward to in that movie is actually Danielle Deadweiler. Oh,
3: yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Yeah. Talk about somebody that was robbed recently.
2: I'm looking forward to Danielle Brooks in The Color Purple.
3: Yeah. Good call.
4: Yes. And be- also Taraji. Hmm.
3: I also want to see what Barry Keoghan is doing in Saltburn. Hmm.
5: Yeah. And speaking of that, I like. I, I'm a big Jacob Elordi fan. I really want to see what he does in Priscilla.
3: Yeah. I'm glad that there's one of you out there.
5: Uh huh. Uh huh. I know. I know how you feel, Matt. But I think that I think she's going to do something cool with it, especially considering. They they kind of have to set it apart, considering we literally just had an Elvis movie. Oh,
3: yeah, I'm not worried about Sophia Coppola and her work on that film. I just Jacob Elordi has not impressed me yet. That's all.
5: But if she cast him, then I think there's a reason. Oh yeah, yeah.
3: I don't disagree with that. I, I will say that if there's ever an opportunity for him to wow me, uh, it's probably with it's this. Here. Yeah,
5: he's in the new <laughs> Sophia Coppola and the new Emerald Fennell. People like him, so I think like. The director sees something in him that you haven't yet seen, Matt, <laughs> but it's there.
3: T.V. Fontaine, which do you prefer? Comedic Gosling or dramatic Gosling?
5: Comedic. 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 <laughs> but, but I love all Goslings.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, that's always going to be the case, but he's Knuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By
5: the way, he that is, more than is back have. on sale, just in case anyone noticed it was sold out. Uh, I know. Oh, my God. My poor wallet i know
3: <laughs> betty dawson coming from the oscar-winning directors of free solo and the rescue starring annette benning and jodie foster shot by claudio miranda and backed by netflix are we underestimating nyad's chances of being a major awards player outside of best actress
5: it's on my radar uh,
3: simply, it's on the radar i'm not predicting it until i see it
5: uh, yeah exactly it's one of those that like it's not that it's not on our radar. It's just it we haven't seen it yet. So and it it just has other kind of hurdles that I'm just I'm waiting to to see it before adding it to
3: my list. It's also Elizabeth and Jimmy's first feature narrative film. Right. So yeah, I mean, like, there's just a tad bit of uncertainty there.
5: It's a different. It's a different world.
3: Yeah. I feel very good about predicting a net betting in my five right now, sight unseen.
4: But (laughs) Which her last couple movies should not make that so easy.
3: (laughs) No, but when you read about on paper what this is about, I think that it makes sense. Oh BP Movie uh, Review Hour just wanted to say, this isn't a question, but I just want to say thank you for showing that even when there are disagreements about a film or a topic discussed, there could be actual dialogue talked about in a level-headed and mature way. That means a lot. Thank you.
4: That is okay. one of our core tenets mm-hmm. here at the Best Next Best Picture Podcast.
3: Did you really just say tenet? Nah, I'm kidding.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay, and then final question for this week. Evan Liebowitz, if you could swap an actor from Barbie and Oppenheimer, who would it be and what role would they play?
2: I mean Florence Pugh is
3: being a Barbie.
5: <laughs> <laughs> i would say Emily Blunt. With who? I don't know, but I'd like to see her in Barbie.
4: (laughs) Oh, okay. I would like to replace Emily Blunt with uh, Emma Mackey.
5: Okay. Yeah, I was thinking that too, actually. Yeah.
4: Because actually, like, apparently that Jean and Kitty were much closer in age than Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh are in real life.
2: (laughs) Um, I don't know who I would swap him with, but I think Josh Peck would make a really good, funny Ken. You're probably not wrong about that. Yeah. I'm not wrong about it. That would be fun.
0: there's so many options for Ken's
4: in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, give me Josh Hartnett. Ooh, Give me Josh Hartnett as a Ken.
5: Oh, yeah. Feeling that.
3: You guys are ignoring the opportunity that lies before us with having David Krumholz as Ken and Barbie. Come on now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see Matt Damon try to be a Ken.
3: <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Oh, wait a minute. It gets even better. Also, you know what? Bring the accent along with him. Betty Safety is Ken. Yeah. (laughs) Until someone builds a bigger doll.
4: Wait, I would like to swap Gary Oldman and Will Ferrell. Oh, yeah. That's
0: good. Okay. That would be fascinating. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I kind of want to see that, right? And instead, and instead of uh, instead of Truman saying,
3: "Don't let that crybaby get back in here," instead Will Farrell says, "You you get out of here." <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it. We're ending there. Yeah. <laughs> We've peaked. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 353 of the Next Best Picture podcast. Lauren Cohen, tell them where they can find you on the Internet.
5: You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Cohen Film.
4: Lauren LaMagna.
5: You guys can find me on the Twitter at Lauren LaMango.
4: Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film on Letterboxd and Post at Dance and Dan.
0: And Josh Parham. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Jr
3: Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us, including our two final reviews for our 2011 retrospective, The Artist and Hugo, which will be dropping in August as we conclude our retrospective with the MVP Film Community Awards. Reminder, once again, those ballots are due before Saturday this week, so get those entered in, submitted to us, and we will announce the nominations on next week's show. Thank you all so much for listening as always, and we will see you all next time.